2: You've heard us say before, the 2020 presidential election was met with record voter turnout. Several states across the country made it easier for Americans to cast their vote amid the deadly coronavirus pandemic.
0: The entire system of elections in the United States is, for the most part, set around the whole construct of having all the foxes guard the hen house. Because if all the foxes are guarding the hen house, then they're not going to let Some other fox go grab those eggs. And so understand there's a context to elections that, in most cases, in most places, works very well because you've got strong partisans from both sides or multiple sides.
2: Welcome to Dead Men Don't Vote. So we're here to ensure the right to vote
0: will be preserved.
2: The podcast where you, the American voter, have the opportunity to understand how elections really work and how you can help improve the process and restore confidence in American democracy. We'll interview leading election experts, explore election controversies, and demystify election administration. From voter registration to ballot casting and county, results reporting, and on through to certification and audits. We'll answer all your burning questions. Is vote by mail safe? How are foreign countries trying to interfere in our elections? And yes, do dead people actually vote? And we hope you will listen,
1: like the future of our country depends on it.
3: Hello and welcome. I'm Royfield Brown, He's in a rather wet, damp, grey, actually, dare I say cold, California. It feels like London. It is that grey and overcast. But today, uh, we're going to try a new format on Mid-Atlantic, which is a thing which I'm uh, dubbing the world this week, where we're going to look at uh, three, possibly four topics in the next hour. Uh, we don't have our regular pundit team with us today, which I think is a... Uh, goes well for having a different type of energy for this new format. And the format is, as I said, we're gonna look at uh, three or four different news topics which uh, concern the world. And today we're gonna start in France with the French election.
0: Tonight, a rematch runoff in the battle for the most powerful politician in France. Current President Emmanuel Macron and far-right candidate Marine Le Pen. (laughs) The two will face off on April 24th as a repeat of their 2017 election. Macron beat Le Pen five years ago in a landslide. But the world has changed, as has the political landscape in France. Macron, who rose to power as an outsider, a candidate pushing for reform from the center, has dealt with yellow vest protests, opposing his policies. A refugee crisis and a pandemic during his time in office. His approval rating underwater for most of his presidency. And as with the United States, extreme right wing policies have gone more mainstream. Ensemble, nous allons construire avec enthusiasm et conviction. Le Pen is known for her far right stances, like restricting immigration and banning Muslim women from wearing headscarves in public. She softened her image in an effort to appeal to a broader audience though questions remain whether it's a true political shift or just a strategy. Frank Lai in
3: Berlin, I'm going to come to you. I must admit, I'm somewhat scared about the prospect of a President Le Pen. Thinking about potentially what this could do uh, for Europe, this is going to completely derail the EU. Already she's talking about potentially uh, France coming out of the uh, command structure of NATO. Uh, This is going to be like Brexit and Trump all rolled into one. What's the view of the French election from Germany?
2: Well, I I can't speak for Germany, but what I personally see is uh, that Marine, uh, what is uh, her full name, Marion-Anne-Perrine Le Pen, Uh, She um, went to president elections for three times already and she uh, didn't get uh, the president of France and I don't see uh, her um, winning this time. Um, Emmanuel Macron uh, does a really great job and uh, from the German perspective, I think we are very delighted to have this man in france because he's um uh great in communication and uh even though there are uh nuances and uh maybe some um differences in, in certain uh, perspectives uh, uh France, with Emmanuel Macron, uh, understands the value of the European Union and also the cooperation and the importance of the cooperation with Germany. And uh, I think, with the um, with the current events in, in in Ukraine and with Russia, I think that uh, uh, Macron has the uh, has has the what it, what could we say to that. Uh, um, an adequate posture uh, that works for the EU that works on the international uh, floors and that works for France so um i i he um raised his numbers if you compare the last election and the current um election he rose uh, his Percentage by one percent uh, uh, right now, and I don't think that Marine Le Pen uh, uh, can uh, hold anything uh, against that. And if you've seen her pose, uh, posing with Putin, and even uh, just before the war started, po- pose, posing with a with a picture with. Putin and Trump and her. So there's a picture, a painted picture with the three of them and they are all looking to the right. So she's on this illiberal, uh, side. And I don't think that France, the liberal France is any, anywhere close to being, uh, to being ready for her or the other way around.
3: There's France being ready for it, and then potentially that there is Europe. We have Tina. Uh, you're based in Helsinki. I'm of Arena. Arena, are you actually in in Ukraine? Where exactly are you today, Arena?
5: Hi, I am actually in Vienna in Austria. I'm originally from Ukraine.
3: Marine Le Pen has said uh, that after this conflict, that uh, the Na- that NATO needs close. Uh, close relations with Russia. She hasn't exactly been uh, the staunchest ally of the Ukrainian people. She's also said that um, NATO and uh, Western countries need to stop sending so many, in parentheses, weapons to Ukraine. What is your opinion about this potential French president?
5: I hope that she will lose. I mean, I'm sure that she will lose, hopefully. (laughs) I was just sitting in the cafe here in Vienna, and there were two Russians sitting next to me on the table next to me. And they were saying, oh, hopefully Le Pen will win. Hopefully she will win. (laughs) So that tells you everything.
3: Uh, And and what was their reasoning for wanting uh, Le Pen to win? Very obviously, she does have this close uh, relationship w- w- with Putin. But what specifically, uh, you know, what what specific rainbows and unicorns would then happen across Europe, according to them, if uh, Marine Le Pen was to become the president of France?
5: Well, I can only assume that, uh, that uh, they hope that uh, France will leave NATO with her and that uh, she will be more supportive of Russia, I suppose. I mean, I didn't feel really it follow too closely uh, because I didn't take it seriously so much. But uh, hopefully she will lose.
3: Uh, Piotr uh, Kurzan, you, you've joined us in the room. Give us a sense of how destabilizing, or not maybe, a, a Marine Le Pen presidency would mean for the European project
4: uh well thank you rofield for, for 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 having me and always great to have uh, another great session in the mid atlantic it's very interesting because obviously le pen is seen as the far right candidate but she was we must remember not even the most far right uh eric zamur who who only won about seven percent of the uh of the vote uh on uh, sunday monday is uh you know was seen as a as an even far righted candidate Um, And and, and if anything, he she sort of uh, he took some votes away from Marilyn Le Pen. uh, And that's why we see Malenchon, the uh, the socialist candidate, so close to Le Pen. I think there was less than a percentage point in it. She's actually tried to move her party further, sort of leftwards is perhaps a strong word, but more centralise it in the set in the proper republicanist centre right area. Um, Now, there are certain issues that she's very still uh, strongly righted, centred on, and that's um, right leaning on, which is immigration, Um, but she has tried to, in recent weeks, uh, distance herself from the more pro-Putin stance she had five years ago, uh, saying, for example, that she fully agrees with the sanctions programmes, and that she would be open to sort of exploring ways to bolster European security. So she's tried to change her tune, but we must remember that she still does come from a background which is incredibly pretty far right in many ways. And I, and I think it shows you the dis, uh, how disenfranchised um, members of the French electorate are, because they the far left have made it very clear that uh, at least the younger generations, that they're going to be voting for her in exit polls that I've seen. Uh, even Mélenchon, who's a, a a huge critique of Macron, has made it very critical to, uh, very, being very vocal rather to his, his, you know, supporters. Don't vote for this woman. Vote for Macron. He's establishment, but he's still less destructive and self-sabotaging, uh, for France and therefore the European project. Last point, Macron is the face of the European project, so to speak. He, he's been pushing for you know European defence uh, and a greater strategical autonomy. And that was reflected in the Strategic Compass initiative that was launched under the Common Security and Defence Policy or a CSDP last year, which is the overarching uh, mechanism in the EU. So if he were to leave, uh, you couldn't be talking further like divergence from um, Le Pen. Uh, chalk and cheese sort of thing. So she, she, we could see um, if Le Pen wins or if Macron stays, we could see a complete polar opposite approach to uh, French security and therefore the European project and overall uh, European um, uh, stability
3: and security against the Russians. Tina, Finland is in the process of applying to become a member of NATO. Finland is a stalwart member of the European Union. Could you see uh, the European Union starting to fray um, if if Le Pen became the president of France?
6: Hey, thank you, Roy. Uh, I follow carefully uh, these elections because uh, if you think about Marie Le Pen, he um, he belongs to same kind of coalition uh, in European Union where you find, uh, for example. Uh, um, uh, Swedish Democrats and, and, uh, from, uh, Sweden, which is same kind of far-right, um, extremist, uh, um, group and, and, uh, also, through True Finns, we call them True Finns and, and I think it's very important to understand that the coalition is very important, um, ecosystem of, of, of European Union. And of course, uh, what we saw before elections uh, uh this so-called far-right coalitions, coal- coalition in European Union start to uh, fall apart a little bit because of, of, of course, Marie Le Pen, uh, I think she mm, lose a lot of uh, uh, voters before the Russian uh, invasion to Ukraine. And we have to remember, uh, Marie Le Pen uh, also lent a lot of money uh, before, uh, I think it was several years ago, from Russian bank uh, before um, being elected uh, after his father, because his father was someone who uh, uh, actually founded the party. So your answer uh, shortly, uh i think i agree with with everybody else in this this room that uh, Marie le pen is not suitable at all uh, for presidency but i understand he reflects some of the voters uh, uh, um, soul and and uh, of course a feeling of not having voice or being uh, drop kind of uh, out of society. It's the same kind of phenomenon what we have in in uh, in Sweden and and also in um, in Finland. So those are countries I know uh, of course well because uh, now living here. But I've been living also in Italy, and you can say forza Italia is some kind of uh, rhetoric. But but let's say let's say that Le Pen, Swedish Democrats, and true Finns are those uh, those kind of what we should be scared about it and worry about it.
3: So many people talk about uh, this disenfranchised voice of people uh, which in part fueled Trump, in part fueled Brexit in the UK and has given wind to right-wing populists and uh, demagogues uh, throughout Europe. Um, What does he say about the economic situation that, uh, that we find ourselves in the West that so many countries are turning, if not wholesale, but in part to right-wing rhetoric that feel uh, that this uh, gives them some level of a solution.
7: There are quite a few exceptions to uh, the baby bust crisis that Western Europe is facing. I mean, one of the easy solutions to that is immigration. I think France has had the most of it out of any EU nation as a as far as a percentage of their retirees to the people who are actively working and gaining skills and ultimately filling out the tax base. But I think for most of the EU, um, I know in the, the median boomer will be retired and for the EU, it's even worse because there isn't a millennial, uh, bulge in the population to support that kind of a tax base in retirement. So it, it might have been Greece and Spain and Italy you know, after 08, but looks like it'll be the majority of Europe uh, going forward if anything happens. And it's going to be pretty difficult to find the money <laughs> anywhere uh, with, with the level, with just the sheer amount of workers that they are going to need and the amount of workers that they're going to have.
3: Andrea, uh, you, you, you unmuted. it.
8: So I was thinking um, about the impact, I I was going to raise the issue of immigration, but I was also thinking about um, the economic impact of inflation uh, and how that is at the moment ravaging uh, the world. Um, But I I think in general, um, another point to note is also how much of it is rhetoric and in, in spin as you are trying as uh, the right wing is trying to you know run and control a narrative um that that divides and uh you know splits uh, people on immigration insecurity and identity um and because i think in general the uh, quality of life and living has been relatively stable uh, and um that Part of this could be narrative, although I'm sure that um, there are many uh, vulnerable populations uh, as well in in France. But I think there's an element of narrative from the right that needs to be examined further.
3: Well, we will see who will be the next president of France um, after Sunday, April the 24th, 2022.
1: Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live.
7: Drama playing out in real time between Twitter and Elon Musk. CNBC correspondent Christina Partsonevolos is covering it all for us today. Uh, Christina, this, this Twitter saga that, uh, has been, has been going on the last few days now has taken another turn this morning. Talk to us about what Elon Musk is doing and why.
9: He's, uh, I guess, the gift that keeps on giving. He's also the richest man in the world, and he said he wants to take Twitter or buy 100% of Twitter and take it private this after he became the largest shareholder earlier this month. What he is proposing is proposing $54.20 in cash per share. Notice how he threw a 420 in there. Uh, He (laughs) believes that he could, quote, unlock the potential of this company. Doesn't think management can do a good enough job. The Twitter board did say that they're gonna be reviewing this short proposal. And then we just learned at CNBC just now that employees are having a meeting and a company-wide meeting at 5 p.m. later today about this information.
3: I don't massively care uh, for this man. I quite like his cars. I quite like uh, the fact that the world is moving to uh, electric power. But other than that, he seems to be a, a little bit of a blowhard, somebody who uh, really likes the sound of his own voice. But what does this mean for freedom of expression, uh, as my American uh, friends are always telling me? Uh, you know, the the, the the ability to speak freely um, in the public space is a, a free speech advocate but he's also somebody who massively commands uh, our media attention. Should we care? Should we not care? Who wants to talk first about Elon Musk potentially buying Twitter? I think we should care because it's, you know,
4: still a Twitter is an unprecedented source of information, be it uh, providing it or exchanging it. And, you know, put it into context. Uh, and the access to information in the areas of like, open source intelligence gathering, um, image sharing, updates. I, it's just it's very, very quick. And you get some good uh, analysis from some, you know, respected people, uh, for example, Dmitry Alpovich, Michael Kaufman, uh, Ian Bremmer, people in the known geopolitical military areas. So it's very useful. Um, and I and the, but the thing that changed it was the audio the function that we're using to have this podcast right now, Clubhouse and Twitter Spaces. Um, I found myself being able to express myself very coherently and effectively on Twitter Spaces. Though, you know, I think it's a good platform. And therefore, if someone wants to buy the whole thing and privatise the company, uh, we should we should care about it. Should we be obsessed with it? No, I don't give two shits. Excuse my French. <laughs> what elon musk is really doing i i think that he's doing a lot of good things for the planet in the sense of space exploration and tesla but i often think he uh, he enjoys being the drama queen or whatever it is um, and frankly maybe it's just my britishness but i've never really been interested in the pop culture obsession of celebrities so uh care no uh yes obsess obsess no uh yeah uh, no um, but you know, pay attention, because what could this mean for other companies and how we uh, facilitate information uh, sharing and, uh, and 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 whether or not it he will change it grossly and and also just for the freedom of speech as a symbol. I think it is important in a time when we 're more polarized
3: and overwhelmed. Why is this man so beloved by um, a certain section of american society and i'll i 'll put it very clearly, as these seem to be young men who are living in their mother's basement. They seem to think this that this man is is the second coming. Why does he command such affection and such loyalty? And why does he chop so much media space? Anybody feel free to jump in.
7: I think a big one is that he has a lot of the appeal that Donald Trump had as far as taking a stance that is offensive to the sacred cows of the establishment. He is is an anti-boomer figure, and that appeals broadly to a lot of young people in America as far as where the culture ought to be shifting toward rather than preserving this television, entertainment, politics, uh, and level university studies kind of... uh, not British, not Anglican, but a, easily a much more prudish society than what Elon Musk would operate. He named his car model "Sexy." He sells a flamethrower that you shouldn't buy. He buys things for 420. He smokes weed on the Joe Rogan Experience. All things that piss off just the right kind of people that other people would like to uh,
3: hurt. In the room chat good friend of the podcast, uh, AB, has said, Elon Musk wanting to buy Twitter has got nothing to do with unlocking Twitter's potential and everything to do with being able to control the flow and access of information that Twitter provides. Anybody care to wildly, violently, polemically disagree with that? Because I must admit, um, as much as I, I care not really for this story, I kind of lean more slightly towards that interpretation as the reason why Uh, Elon Musk has uh, a bought nine percent of Twitter, but wants to buy the rest of it.
7: The state of Twitter now: Twitter is affecting uh, the information that people receive. Twitter is affecting culture, the way the country is operating, the way people are behaving at work. And so, if there's going to be a battle of it, and it's going to go, the flow is going to be directed towards the person who's the highest bidder. I think we've all selected with our pocketbooks. Uh, who's going to be capable of controlling that information? Andrea, you unmuted.
8: I just had one further observation on Elon Musk, which is, um, I think it remains to be seen. You know what he uh, does um, with, you know, with this stake. Um, I think it is very interesting, especially for those of us on these types of social audio platforms as well, where where moderation um, is key, uh, you know, uh, to see, uh, I find it interesting that in all the news coverage on this, very little has been, um, light has been shed on some of the harms uh, from these types of social media platforms, the complete total unfettered uh, public square, or, you know, which is meant to be good for free speech and certainly uplifts. And we can hear, you know, what people around the world are thinking uh, without censorship. Uh, But then there is evidence and there are studies showed uh, where sometimes that can devolve into, uh, you know, harassment uh, both on the platform and off, uh, possibly reckless statements. And, um, you know, maybe, So I think it's going to be very interesting uh, and misinformation, excuse me, and disinformation, which has been uh, very uh, detrimental, actually, to uh, democracy as a whole, as we are learning and not just democracy, but health and COVID and and other issues. So it's going to be very interesting to see what he does uh, with with his stake and share in the platform in terms of his motivation. Uh, I think if he uses it uh, to somehow block, to privatise it or somehow block people that, you know, dissent with his views or would stand up against him, then obviously uh, he'd be undermining his whole argument um, about the the need to keep uh, speech completely free and unfettered.
3: That's an excellent point. And I'm just going to read out one of the messages in in the chat was from A.B., a good friend of the podcast. And he says, particularly with the many criticisms Elon gets about his business venture, uh, buying Twitter would essentially allow him to censor any criticisms and critics from speaking out about anything he or those in his circle are involved in. And and if you remember back, he did accuse um, what the... Let me get this right now. I'm doing this from memory. There was uh, the cave in Thailand about... Three years ago, where the school kids were, were trapped, and somebody went in and rescued them, and he accused them, of, and he accused that person of being a paedophile, and he used Twitter to, to amplify uh, th- this claim. And this person, you know, and it was the most egregious thing to say to somebody who was actually go- going to rescue people. Um, if he owns Twitter, you know, it does feel ver- very odd if I am forced to really sit down and think about this because I did dismiss this too readily beforehand that somebody who is the richest man in the world or one of the richest men in the world has also got his hands completely on this mouthpiece and he, and he has used it recklessly in the past. Anybody care to comment?
11: I'll Honestly, I comment. think... Okay, go for it.
10: Oh, yeah, I guess two things here. Um, well, the- Andrea had mentioned issues about misinformation or the abuse of social media and that's causing broader problems in society. Royfeld, you just mentioned Elon Musk saying reckless things on Twitter that, you know, I guess ruffle feathers. I think he, I can't remember if he got a fine from the SEC for tweeting. Uh, he, got, he definitely got in some trouble tweeting um, uh, about a potential buyout for Tesla and having secured a stock price and whatnot. And that was violated some rules. But in general, I mean, it seems like his motivation, one of his motivations is, um, being upset with censorship in general. I, for one strongly support, you know, any moves to, uh, you know, remove censorship, remove like the centralization of control of, uh, information flows on the internet. Like the original promise of the internet was that anybody is supposed to be able to talk to anybody. That's a, you know, is it, it was, uh, designed in a way that it's supposed to be able to withstand a nuclear war. And, you know, any, you know, it would reroute your packets anywhere it needed to go in order to reach its final destination. And it largely was users who just gave up control to these big platforms to, to decide, oh yeah, you can filter all my information through this. Um, it, you know, because, uh, you know, it's, it's easy to see, you know, cat photos of my friends or, and to hit like, and you know, there's a, there's a snazzy interface for that. And most people didn't demand, um, accountability and flexibility and decentralization all the things that really like the internet was originally designed for and had a lot of promise for. So there, there was a big regression that happened. I would market with the advent of Facebook in the mid two thousands. And, uh, I think now now people are talking about web three and things like that, and I think we're uh, slowly giving birth to a new era of decentralization and lack of censorship and lack of centralized control and I think Elon Musk sees some potential to okay, how can we take the old you know and revivify it uh, remove these ridiculous constraints to some degree, still keeping some of it obviously, but um you know, I, I applaud him for his, you know, however it works out. I, I just think uh, even if it's a big, a massive troll, I applaud him even more. And I think it's great that he he tweets like random, weird, sounds like he's on psychedelic things at three in the morning while he's running two of the largest companies in the world. I just applaud him. He has every right to do so. He's He's earned the right to do so. So those are my thoughts. Thank you.
11: Well, I'll tell you, nothing says uh, decentralization than one guy owning 100% of one of the largest social media companies in the world, right? That was uh, m- my thoughts entirely. If you're listening to this at
3: home, why don't you uh, download the Clubhouse uh, app for your phone? What it means is that then you can be part of one of the live recordings of the show. Uh, when when they go out, then you can be alerted by joining the Mid-Atlantic Club. If you're in the audience, hit the Mid-Atlantic um, icon, the little greenhouse, top right, top left on your phone, and then you'll be alerted as when we go live. Um, I'm going to move on from Elon Musk, and I'm going to go now to the Black Sea.
9: Welcome to the program. It's 50 days today since Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the start of the war there. And Ukraine is claiming to have carried out a missile attack on the flagship of Russia's Black Sea fleet, setting it on fire. The Russians admit the Moskva has been badly damaged, but they say it was because ammunition on board exploded. Quoting the Russian defense ministry, Interfax says the crew of around 500 had all been evacuated and the cause of the fire being investigated. But a Ukrainian official has said the ship had been hit by two missiles however this has not been confirmed the Moskva is the pride of the russian naval fleet in the black sea russia's activities there are crucial to supporting land operations in the south of ukraine where russia is battling to seize full control of the port of Mariupol. there are very different narratives in russia and ukraine about what happened with the moskva cruiser
3: since I clipped that up from, from the BBC, uh, we now know that the Moskva has actually sunk. Um, this is yet another sign as to how disastrously the Russian campaign is going with its uh, attempt to occupy Ukraine. The Ukrainians are fighting back valiantly, not just on land, but now also on sea. And this is the second Russian naval Bit of material that have actually sunk tr- during the war. I am going to come to you first, Piota, uh, but I want, really want to widen this out. So, uh, I'll, obviously, this is shown us the military prowess of the Ukrainians. I also want us to look at what this means in terms of the the, the continued escalation of the war. So, Piota Kurzyn, the Moskva has been sunk, and I think what's significant was that the the news of this actually came from Russian wires.
4: Well, Roy Field, this is um, this is a turning point, I think. I mean, you you can point to a few, um, not just symbolic, but um, mar- remarkable moments or notable moments where you, there was perhaps one phase was ending and another phase begun, or, or there was a tide turning, um, so to speak, a bit of a sea change, as English punditries like to say. So when we first heard that the ship had been hit or had these issues, you know, I was sitting on the fence. Is it really the Russians or is it the Ukrainians? The Ukrainians have these recently acquired Neptune missiles, their first batch coming as early uh, late as last year. And these are the ones that they said were, had, had been used to strike the ship. Now, the Russians claimed that this wasn't true. And, and naturally uh, and they said that this was actually due to an internal sort of breakage of uh, electronics and, a, and an ammunitions failure which if was the case would reflect a a almost tit-for-tat version that we saw on the land uh, about two and a half weeks ago you know in Bolgorod one of the uh, nearby Russian settlements um, of Ukraine there was a a, a blast of and people weren't able to tell whether it was the Russians who'd mishandled their munitions or whether the Ukrainians had struck them with some missiles. Uh, so the same seems to be apparent here. But what seems to have happened is that either way, the Russians were actually telling the truth uh, in that the ship was damaged and now it's sunk due to um, rocky waters. So should we perhaps believe them uh, about a couple of other things? If they're willing to admit this, their flagship vessel of the, vessel of the Black Sea fleet being sunk, then perhaps they are being honest about a couple of other things as well in in in, in the sense of um, mishandles and just poor military craftsmanship, so to speak. So that's something that's uh, that's that's interesting to keep in mind. And I'll be monitoring myself. But in the broader picture, I mean, look, the this the vessel was valued at about uh, three quarters of a billion dollars. Um, by far the most important vessel of the Black Sea Fleet, uh, not the most powerful all all and out, but it was, you know, it was getting on. It's about 40 years old since it was first uh, launched. and um, uh, But it was very useful and, uh, and and had led a very important set of uh, campaigns in the earlier part of this conflict. And to, to the final point I'll make in terms of looking ahead, I mean, this could be significant for just how far and capable the Russians believe they can be specifically meaning that up until this point, we're waiting for this Russian advancement offensive to occur on the eastern flank of Ukraine, enter into the Donbass region and take not both, not just Luhansk but the Netsk. And then there were other people, including myself, that if that went quite swimmingly, then maybe the Russians would push once they reached the south coast westwards, try and secure the whole Sea of Azov the body of water rightwards of Crimea, and then push as far west as they could, perhaps to Kasson. Now, this, if they wanted to do that, that would require significant naval support, uh, because the Ukrainians are increasingly well positioned down there, especially around the Dynapur River and Kasson. So if they've lost their primary battle cruiser, is that going to make the Russian military consider? We finally have a clear-cut general at the top now, who was uh, leading in Syria, so maybe he's going to be looking at this and thinking... Well, we may have to reevaluate just how far we can push our our, our phase two of the campaign. So, it's definitely going to be some some discussions, I think, going on in the inner military circles of the Kremlin and whatnot about uh, what to do in the light of these events.
3: Andrea, I, I kind of said um, in my kind of preamble um, to to this section that for me, one of the surprising things or significant things is the fact that it, this this news that the uh, the Moskva had been sunk was confirmed by the Russians first. Um, does, does this kind of hint at maybe a change in policy, that the Russians are going to be much more open about their losses? Or is this just somewhat of a quirk? Should we not read too much into it? What do you reckon?
8: Based on pure opinion only, I did think that that was very interesting that it was claimed, or, or even by a, a Moscow-based think tank, uh, first by the Center for Analysis of S- Strategies and Technologies, uh, which they, I believe they said on a Telegram channel. I, I thought that that was fascinating. And I wouldn't read too much. I, I would say that we have to wait and see, um, unless they are wanting to uh, drum up support at home uh, and reinforce... Um, you know, the need to continue to fight this war and get some sympathy uh, for the war uh, by, you know, sharing some of their losses. But uh, I think more than likely I would keep my eye on it. My, my feeling is that it was a quirk and one that we should uh, continue to keep our eye
3: on. It's, it's interesting because I viewed it slightly the other way, that potentially this is a, a loosening of Kremlin uh, censorship And or are the media asserting independence? That's the way that I kind of read it. But we can slightly widen this out slightly. Irina, uh, you're Ukrainian. uh, You now find yourself in in Austria. Are you able to keep in contact with friends and family? Uh, And if so, how are you doing that and how are they?
5: Well, yeah, I keep in touch with, first of all, my mom moved to the western Ukraine, western part of Ukraine from Kiev, but most of my family didn't want to leave, so they are still there, and we keep in touch by phone. And I also speak with a lot of people here on Clubhouse all the time from Ukraine, so yeah, you can ask me questions, I don't know what you're interested in, but I keep in touch with Ukrainians all the time. And
3: how is their morale, you know, the people that you do keep in contact with? I had a really interesting conversation on Clubhouse with um, an embedded journalist, an American embedded journalist who's actually in Odessa. He was actually saying that life in Odessa in the last week or so has sprung back, um, you know, that bars and cafes are still open. Uh, that is very obviously not the case in the East, uh, which is, uh, if not under Russian occupation. It's still very close to uh, where the fu- where the front line uh, truly is. So, just give us a sense of um, your your family without going into too many specifics. You know, were they displaced? Are they getting daily air raid uh, warnings, etc.? But you know, without too many specifics, just give us sure. uh, some kind of mm-hmm. picture. thank you, Arena.
5: Sh- sure. So uh, they are not displaced. Um, I mean, a little bit displaced, <laughs> let's put it this way, a little bit displaced. Uh, some of my relatives are actually in the defense, uh, you know, a, a, how do you call it, like troops, not the army, but uh, regional troops. Um, what I think what is interesting is that so many people are going back to Kiev, that there are huge uh, traffic jams on the way to Kiev and the mayor said, don't come back. Uh, for a few days, a few weeks, uh, because it's like uh, logistically difficult. Uh, the l- morale is extremely good, extremely you know strong and confident. I'm not talking about the eastern and southern part, though. I talked with some people from the east, and they're also very confident and strong and united, and also don't want to leave, even in the south south of Ukraine. Uh, I cannot speak about uh, you know places like Mariupol and Lugansk and Donetsk. It's different. Mm, uh, yeah, so I think that, yeah, and in the central part of Ukraine and even in some um, western part, they still hear the air raids and the sirens. So it's a little bit strange. I didn't think that in the central Ukraine and in the western part uh, there would be air raids, but uh, probably there are. So that's the situation. Thank you.
3: Thank you, Irina. Uh, Tina, I going to come to you. Um, Sweden and Finland uh, are formally starting the process to join NATO. Um, and this is obviously, uh, that both countries feel that they're being pushed into this position by uh, Russia's bellicose actions in Ukraine. The response of Putin in terms of Finland and uh, Sweden wanting to join, I think it's been somewhat kind of comical. It's a case of you're going to do this, so I'm going to threaten you, which actually reinforces the whole point of actually wanting to join NATO. I know we spoke about this uh, before in a previous room, but could you give us some sense of the political debate which has been happening in, in Finland uh, regarding joining NATO and how threatened did Finns actually feel by those pictures a few days ago of uh, Russia moving uh, rocket launchers closer to the to the Finnish border was that truly something which people said well well there you go we now need to join NATO which is a case of this is this is a bit of an eye roll this is kind of posturing
6: yes I thank you for asking me that uh yes this this depot uh, has been going on uh, for several weeks. And of course, what happened uh, just yesterday was the government of Finland release so-called uh, framework of uh, new uh, national security situation, uh, where uh, actually member of of the parliament, member of the uh, s- sorry uh, government, just um, analyze uh, whether Finland should. Uh, applying uh, for NATO or not. And I think uh, we've been seeing um, a lot of threats during uh, decades because uh, as far as I remember, it's not first the uh, first time when uh, Russia uh, is using uh, hard rhetoric. But of course, uh, during these days uh, and during these weeks, uh, there is a lot of... Uh, I can call it also propaganda because uh, I think um, russia knows pretty well uh how to uh, move uh, uh, certain individuals uh, to spread uh, uh, information uh, which yeah. sounds uh, someone else yes, much more harder than is it and we just uh, read um, about ex-president Medved, who uh, actually gave uh, uh I think he was interviewed by, uh, by European uh, journalist uh, and he told uh, precisely that Finland and Sweden will have some consequences. And if you look the, if you look at the here Finland's politicians what they say afterwards, they say this is very typical info war what we've been having during this time because it's not only these big persons uh, who gives uh interviews uh, during uh, um, the the um, time when we are um, uh thinking to a uh, plane to NATO, but we also have uh, a via violation of the airspace just uh last week. And we've been having also cyber attacks uh, to the um, government websites and uh, it lasts several hours and also for our, our biggest banks. So I think uh, Russian is very good. Uh, to organize any kind of uh, uh, so-called hybrid influencing. And we should not take uh, or consider too much on it. But of course, the situation is totally different than uh, than, uh, um, one month ago. And everybody said that not only me and people who are living in my country, but all the politicians and and uh, war experts and leaders and of course everybody who uh, who knows how Russia changed during the ten years. There is no uh, free uh, media anymore, and uh, there is so much violations of human rights. So it's a country you cannot trust anymore. So this is Tina I'm done speaking.
3: Thank you for that, Tina. Frank Lai, last point, a pointed question to you, then I'm going to kind of open this out because I know we have a few more people on stage. There's been a little bit of a spat between Ukraine and Germany, Ukraine being very upset about Germany's kind of pre invasion stance vis a vis Russia. And energy supplies. Um, your your president wanted to go there. The Ukrainians said no a few days ago. Was this a big deal in the
2: German media? Uh, yes, it, it it is the president of of Germany, and uh, he has just been reelected, and uh, he uh, is a reputable um, politician. He has a uh, yeah so he has some reputation and um but uh but um on the other side and i it, this is really some i think that the that week we have to be um very cautious because because the, this uh invasion by russia uh is way bigger than any 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 Particular person or politician, but, uh, but so in Germany it is generally understood why Zelensky has to act in certain ways, and that is presented presented uh, through, throughout the media. Um, uh, so it is generally understood why he is acting in in the way he does, and it is also understood that if you if you look at the history of Steinmeier. Uh, having his photos with Putin, that uh, he personally doesn't want to invite uh, Steinmeier to the Ukraine, given that the support that uh, he needs for to, to defend uh, Ukraine right now isn't met up from the German side as he would wish to. But the situation is very complex. I think that uh, uh, Germany does a lot of things, and we have to acknowledge the the situations that, that the countries are in, and uh, we also need to keep a focus on uh, on how to affect Putin and his circles and the oligarchs, and not hurt certain populations more than uh, than those circles and all of these things are in a very complex manner uh, connected and but yeah it is presented it is discussed and it is uh, uh it is not taken lightly and it's also not taken into a binary but uh, there there is a disappointment i think uh, uh, for the president himself and uh, uh and um for yeah, for the German uh, representative side uh, in, in general. I mean, this is the German uh, president, and it, it it is not just the the, the the person. I hope that answers the question.
3: It absolutely does, and thank you for that, Frank. Aaron, you have a, a great opportunity here to be able to to wrap things up for us in terms of. We started off talking about the French election with Marine Le Pen potentially having the opportunity to become the next president of France and what it will do to Europe. We're now talking about the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. Give us some idea of some of the geopolitical fallout that uh, a Le Pen presidency would mean immediately uh, to the conflict in Ukraine.
11: Uh, A couple of things there. I mean, so uh, Marine Le Pen, uh, very much a nationalist. And uh, so because of that, um, largely seen as uh, anti intergovernmental treaty, she has not been uh, she hasn't had great things to say about NATO or the EU. And the other thing is that she's found a bit of a friend in, in Putin, actually, soon after the annexation of Crimea. She made statements saying that it was perfectly uh, legitimately legal for for Putin to have uh, uh, done what he did there with Crimea thing. I mean, one of the reasons why the sanctions and the ostracization, uh, you know, of uh, the Russian government there has been so so successful is because everyone's kind of doing it at the same time, right? Not everybody equally, of course, right? We have we still have uh, Turkey taking Russian money and, and Resources there and paying for that. We have Germany still buying Russian oil. Generally speaking, the campaign has been successful because everyone's kind of on the same page. France's position in NATO and the EU is quite substantial. And so if France goes uh, in a particular direction, other places will as well. We understand it also in terms of the EU that uh, Victor Orban. Uh, uh, is also pretty friendly, Putin as well. It'll be, actually be interesting because one of the things that I forecast is that typically in, in EU deliberations, right, you've had Poland and Hungary kind of, you know, being a lockstep in terms of, uh, how do I put this diplomatically?
3: Um, being Eurosceptics. Um, <laughs> sure. <laughs> outliers to the liberal European project.
11: Yes, yeah, thank you. Thank you, Russell. Appreciate that there. A- exactly. Um, and so it's been interesting because with the invasion, Poland uh, certainly doesn't have any time for Putin's bullshit, but Viktor Orban does. And so there's been a, a bit of a schism, to put it lightly, uh, in the sort of small alliance that uh, uh, Hungary and Poland had ideologically. What I think that uh, can happen, uh, Marine Le Pen does win, is that she will be? She will kind of take the place of Poland's peace party there to be the ideological teammate there for uh, Viktor Orban. The, uh, um, I'm not sure that France is really helping the Ukrainian army there that much, um, so I'm not sure how much of a difference it will make for this particular thing in the near term. Um, however, I think that definitely we could see arguments for diminishing NATO support perhaps that Le Pen uh, uh, could certainly argue uh, in favour of. Yeah, you, you, you're
3: completely right. We have had this conversation before, and the one thing which has scared all Euro skeptics uh, from that position is the mess that us Brits made uh, of Brexit. You were the staunchest Front National member, and I'm calling them the, the National Front of France because that's what they are, they just put a new lick of paint. Or you were uh, part of the league in Italy, And you talked about X in European Union, and it's been an utter nightmare when you looked at what's happened in Britain. So nobody wants to do that. But you can strategically roll back, though, can't you? You can say things like uh, we're going to put in laws which are illiberal, just like what the Hungarians have and and the the, the Poles have. So all of a sudden there is much more restrictions around abortion, LGBTQ rights, etc., you can say that we are going to um, not so much money. Also, immigration. We're also going to not put so money, so much money into the European pot. Uh, you can you can slow the works down, can't you? You can argue against balance of transfer payments to the poorer bits of Europe, etc. Cetera, et cetera, So there are many things which you can do while still being part of the European structure just to gum, gum the works up. And there you go folks, uh, that's been the very first The World uh, this week. Um, this is part of the podcast Mid-Atlantic. A Mid-Atlantic you can find by going to a podcatcher of your choice. You'll go and find hundreds of these shows. been doing them for some eight years now uh, speaking to uh, experts pundits, sometimes just my friends, sometimes even family members about politics. Uh, generally from a US and a UK perspective but sometimes from a broader perspective. We'll do this once a week, every Thursday, round about this time where we'll have three or four news stories and uh, we'll try and unpack them and then unpack them uh, in an hour. That's been me, Royfield Brown, speaking to Tina, Frank, Irina, Andrea, Aaron, Agent, Piotr, And a few others besides. Um, Give uh, the Mid-Atlantic Club a follow, please. Give people on the stage a follow if you're in the audience because they're all good people. They've come up on stage and they've shared their views and they've told you what they thought of the world this week. Take care. Look after yourselves. Bye-bye.